And then, you know, when the judge just smacked it down like that, just 20 years, you know, just reality really kicked in as they started cuffing me up. You know, my, my family's starting to cry. And, uh, I was just like, all right, you know, like this is the reality of the situation. I'm going to make every day count. There's not going to be one day I can look back on and think, why didn't I use this time more effectively? And I'm going to change my life and I'm going to help other people change their lives. If you're a person who's heard the word no from a boss, an ex, a team that cut you, a job market that didn't want you, an accident or diagnosis that left you debilitated and depressed, or felt paralyzed by any setback that you just weren't willing to accept, this is the show for you. 10,000 No's is a roadmap built by guests who have blazed trails, silenced critics, and overcome the odds by facing down their fears and transforming their failures into fuel. I don't care if you're young or old, healthy or sick, there is always an opportunity for growth. This is Matthew Del Negro, and you're listening to 10,000 No's. Welcome back. Thank you, as always, for being here, for all the love on social media. I happened to just go through uh, randomly the iTunes store and saw all these new reviews and five-star ratings. Thank you guys so much. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. Please keep sharing it with your friends and family. We really appreciate it. I am so excited for you to hear the incredible story of today's guest, Rob Groupie. And to set it up, I got to ask you, what would you do if you screwed up, made poor decisions consistently for a good chunk of time, and those poor decisions led to you being sentenced to 20 years in prison, a real prison, not a country club prison, a real one with every kind of hardened criminal you could imagine. Now, we talk about overcoming no's on this show. We talk about reframing, but this man was really put to the test when he found himself faced with 7,000 days in prison. His reaction to that sentence and his decision to use that time to better himself is what makes him the positive leader he is today. The very thing that almost broke him, he views as a blessing. And we get to remind ourselves of all the principles that get thrown around on this podcast in the stark light of the possibility of literally losing it all. His story reminds me of one of my favorite films of all time, The Shawshank Redemption, which is all about not losing hope when we are imprisoned, whether it be literally or figuratively. It is chock full of lessons, so we're going to get right to it. Rob Groovy. Why don't we start with, um, you know, what you're doing present day? I know that I'm sure on your tax returns, it says gym owner or business owner or entrepreneur or something like that. But describe in your own words what it is that you do and what Twice Bitten CrossFit is all about. Uh, just give us, I want people to have a snapshot of where you are today. So we have one of the, the biggest facilities in Oklahoma City that is a CrossFit facility. Um, but I believe we are not a fitness facility. Uh, we are a life transformation facility. Um, so we really focus on helping the person that comes to us become the strongest, healthiest version of themselves, not only physically, but mentally and emotionally as well. And we do that through, you know, creating uh, an, an intimate and vulnerable 
environment where people know it's okay that they're not perfect. Yeah. That's great. And what, what, uh, you know, everybody is about to hear, uh, is your story and how that's, you know, that was hard won. Like the, the reason you're able to do that, I think a lot of it is because of what you went through, which is why, you know, you're kind of the poster child for 10,000 no's. Um, one of the things I heard you say in another interview, uh, was about how you coach and how you kind of, elevate people by, yeah, I, I really, I, I enjoyed it. I'd love for you to explain it about like kind of coming to their level or coming, trying to get inside their skin and see what it is that influences them. Explain how, how you do that, your, your philosophy on, on helping people change and get results. Well, one of the things about influence to influence somebody, you have to know what they're already influenced by. And so aligning with them wherever they're at and then through the power of questions, helping to lead them um, to the place that's going to, to be the best for the solution uh, to the problem or the challenge that we're facing or, or what we're trying to accomplish together as a team. You know, just really reflecting and thinking about how, how, do, how can I help them grow into the person um, that's, that's going to be able to have a, a solution for this obstacle that we're facing. What questions can I ask to lead them there? Yeah. It's cool for me to hear that because it's not unlike an actor, you know, as an actor, my job is to get under the skin of my characters and defend their point of view to the world. So I, I dig what you're doing and I feel like that's, you know, I've also had people on the show that, uh, were, um, uh, written books, children's books with behavioral. And that's, that's what it's all about. Like what, you know, can I understand where you are now and what you need and then help you make a better choice? And it's funny that like, whether you're dealing with toddlers or babies or people, adults in a gym, it's kind of the same principles. Um, yeah, I think, so, you know, it's because when you, when you just tell somebody, you know, their subconscious response can be defensive and then nothing else gets through. But when you can lead it in the form of permission and a question, then you can, you can get around that. You mm. know? Yeah. So take me, take me back to growing up. Um, what, what did your life, I just kind of want to take you, take everybody through what, what got you to where you are today. And so you grew up um, in Oklahoma as well. Oklahoma city. Yeah. Yeah. And you, and you, considered yourself. Now I feel like every, you know, people can't see you, but they will see pictures of you. You're, you're a physical specimen and you have described yourself as a fat kid growing up, which everybody I, that I interview who is, who is a physical specimen says the same thing. I was skinny. I was fat, whatever it was. You found bodybuilding at a pretty early age, I think. Uh, and that was your, your dad that, that got you into it. Yeah. So there was, you know, fat kid growing up and there was a particular time where um, I ended up basically getting beat up by a group of older kids. And it happened on my front porch. It was one of the most humiliating things that's ever happened to me in my life. And just in that moment, you know, as it was happening, you know, one person spit in my face, another person punched me. And I'm just like pleading, like, please stop. You know, I'm sorry. And then I, I went back in the house and just the feeling that I had of, you know, like, why didn't I fight back? Why didn't I do something? I just felt like a bitch. Right. And how, and I how old were you at that point? Probably 11, 12. 
Okay. And I never wanted to feel that way again. And uh, my dad had been trying to get me into to bodybuilding and things like that. And so we had some equipment. And so it was just like a switch clicked in my head that I, you know, I wanted to, to get become strong. You know, I wanted to, to never feel like that again. I wanted to be prepared. And so that, what about before that? Had you played sports or anything when you were younger or was that not even on the radar? Like anything with your body or physical? No. I really hadn't done anything. You know, I just indulged and uh, ate foods, how I became fat kid. Right. Um, so yeah, that, that just really put the fire in me. And that was my first source of discipline and dedication. Everything that had to, to do with getting stronger, bodybuilding, Arnold stuff. Like I was about it. I was watching movies. I was reading books. That was, it became an obsession. See, that's fun. It's interesting to me that you had no, cause, cause you're, you're a big guy and you're, you, you know, that you had no, um, nothing to do with sports when you were younger. Were you a student or did you feel like you were kind of just aimless? I mean, sometimes people don't have, you know, particular memories of their childhood, but did you, was it like you were aimless and in a way that kind of gave you, it, it sounds like it gave you focus, but, but before that, like it was your, what was it like growing up? Like, was that a typical thing to happen where you grew up? Was it a tough neighborhood or was that just a random act that happened with some older kids? I made bad decisions. Like I was, you know, I was getting in trouble at school. I was hanging around with the wrong crowd, you know, all of those things. I didn't play sports. My family just wasn't into it. So I really didn't have any role models in that sense to, to guide me in that. Um, so yeah, I just, uh, my neighborhood was not, not the, the best one. And so I just kind of, kind of got into trouble and was pretty much aimless, didn't really have any goals or anything like that. So that was the first thing that really set me on a path of doing something and, uh, and feeling better, having some structure. And then once you did that, you just kind of sounds like you got obsessed with it. I mean, with like, like muscle mags and, and all of that. And that, that became from my understanding, kind of an identity, even at that young age. Yeah, absolutely. You know, as I started to see my body change and feel things change, uh, you know, my psychologically, how I felt about myself, I became more confident. And then, you know, reading the different materials, seeking out like the best programs, things like that. It just it really, you know, set the stage for other you know disciplines in my life. Right. So then walk me through the the kind of the timeline of you go through high school. It sounds like you're into this. Um, I, you know, you're you eventually get to the point where you hurt your back. Now, is that I don't know if I if I got it correctly. Was that like from deadlifting that was in the gym? You hurt yourself. Right. Yeah. And, that, and that's what led to. Why don't you describe this? Because I what I want people to hear is. You know, here's a guy who's it, it sounds like clean living, all about your body, um, and and all of a sudden you get hurt, and the thing that kind of, from my understanding, ultimately did you in, and 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 what I love is that you you know you put the blame on yourself and your choices, but but the poison happened to be. Um, I assume it was prescription drugs at first, the painkillers. And that was for the back. Is that how it came about? Or were you dabbling in other drugs before that? And then this ended up being something that piled on top of it. So about the age, either 14 or 15, I got into selling weed. 
And, uh, you know, that was a power deal for me because, you know, it automatically, you know, created a source of a way that I could have what I wanted. And, um, it gave me a, a sense of power. And so it, I treated it like a business. You know, I was, I was dealing weed in small amounts. It slowly uh, grew into more. And, and eventually this turned into uh, a Mexico connection where I was going to get steroids. And then uh, that led into me also getting Xanax volume and then uh, Oxycontins from there. So it was just, you know, me dealing drugs as a business and, then when I did hurt my back, the painkillers, I already had them. Ah, yeah. And so that like, it actually, I had strep throat one time and I felt sick and I thought, Hey, you know, why don't I just take one of these painkillers? Um, I've got it. So I took it and I felt amazing. I mean, I felt amazing. And in my mind, like I had no concept of addiction or anything like that. And I was just like, man, why don't, why don't I take these all the time? You know, so I started taking them before I worked out, started taking them before I went to jujitsu practice and everything was just like, great. You know, different drugs have different effects on different people. And this to me was just like, made me like full of energy. So I was actually, you know, on painkillers at the time when I was deadlifting, went for a one rep max on like 455 and uh, didn't get it and then went and did it again and bam, back was hurt. And and even through the painkillers, like I was, it was, it was done, you know, and I didn't know what to do, but you know, it, it really, it took my identity from me because everything that I, you know, had connected to myself, my image, you know, like it, it was now gone, you know? Right. So Right. That, That's that crazy. I mean, what's crazy to me about that story is that you were 14 or 15. And like, when did the Mexico connection come in? Were you that young when that was all that was happening? That no, was- so I, I was dealing drugs, just weed up until the time I was about 17 or 18. And that's when I made the first trip to Mexico. And it was me and a buddy that went there to, to search for this specific steroid pill that we never found. But uh, I ended up meeting two brothers that owned a pharmacy there that were like, hey, anytime you come down, you know, just come here. We'll get you everything you need. And so that connection started there and it just started building, you know. Uh, And so an unintended, you know, business structure started within that and it started doing really well. And it in itself became an addiction because I went from taking five hundred dollars at a time down there to taking $20,000 at a time down there, bringing back massive quantities of Xanax, Valium, steroids. And then every time I got to, I I had a a system where somebody would cross the stuff out of Juarez, Mexico into El Paso. I had a spot created in my vehicle above the gas tank where I could lift the back seat up or move a plate and then be in a drive-through car wash where when the car is covered with soap, I would put the stuff in there that I had prepackaged in Mexico before it got crossed over. And then when I went to the second checkpoint, you know, the, the, Border patrol person would ask, you know, uh, citizenship purpose of your visit. And I would tell him, you know, U.S. citizen. And I'm here. I'm part of a network marketing company. Part of my downlines here. And if you have a minute. And then they would just be like, no, 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 go. So each time I would crest the hill after that, it was just such a rush because I knew like I, I made it. I did it again. And I knew that I would never stop that on my own. 
Wow. Yep. I was just going to say, you know, I know you're a big Tony Robbins guy and, you know, he has this thing, life works for you. Um, and I, and, you know, the disease is the cure and we're about, you know, we're going to get to the, the disease for you, which I think was that prison sentence. But as you're telling me this, you know, I knew this story, but I didn't, I didn't know it in, in that fashion. And as I'm hearing it, it's like, oh yeah, you know, just from like a character standpoint, it's like this guy, you know, you were probably going to kill yourself that way eventually anyway, you know, cause it sounds like the stakes would keep ratcheting up. And then, so, so it's, um, ironic in a way that you were, you know, what, what ended up happening and, and kind of saving you. So you, you, you're doing this, you're getting addicted, um, to the power, uh, I'm assuming at this point you're making so much money. Did you did you not even think of college as an option? Was that just something that wasn't even on the table? Or were my you parents, all? What's my that? Wanted me to go, but I just wasn't into it. You know, it didn't interest me. Um, you know, I took a few classes, did okay, and I just I just didn't want to do it. Yeah. You know, I was like, I, I just it, it seemed to me like a, a waste of time during the time. Right. So 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 walk us to. Uh, what happened at this stoplight? Um, you know, how old are you? You're, you know, you've been doing this for a while. You're now in your, I believe, early twenties. Give us, you know, what what happened that day when um, that led to the events of everything else that ensued. Okay, so when I got hooked on the painkillers, I also thought it was a good idea at that time to also start selling cocaine. So that got brought into the mix. I started selling it. Um, I was taking so much Oxycontin, I was taking 800 milligrams a day. Like that's a lot. And even though I was making a lot of money dealing drugs, that started to affect that. So I was spending about $300 a day on Oxycontin's 1080s a day that I was sniffing. And so I was about to, to contact my family, but then somebody gave me the idea of just going to a methadone clinic. And so I started doing that. So I went from spending $300 a day to $50 a week and uh, was on a really high dose of methadone. And for those that don't know, methadone is a synthetic opiate with opiate blockers. So it keeps you from taking other opiates because they won't work. And so I had also started sniffing cocaine and I did that to the point I was doing it so much so often that. I couldn't sniff it anymore. It had messed my nose up to, to where I, that, that, that it just wouldn't work. So naturally I thought the next best thing to do would be to shoot it. Right. Obviously, you know, that makes sense. Right. 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 Freud did it. So, you know, it, it must be fine. And, you know, I know I took health science technology one and two, so I know how to do it with bacteriostatic water and then I'm safe and all that. So I'm shooting cocaine 15 times a day. Holy and crap. Yeah. The only time that I slept is basically just when I passed out. And so on that particular evening, you know, and just like, just to, to reference this, uh, I had tried going back to the gym, but now I'm on all these drugs. And I can remember one time I'm, I'm doing some bench presses and my heart starts to do some weird stuff. And I think in that moment, I'm like, Oh man, like I got to quit working out. You know, it wasn't like I got to stop doing drugs. It was, I got to quit working out, yeah. you know, and yeah. just thinking back to those things, it's, it's crazy. You know, there's, there's no justification for it. It doesn't make any sense, but, but yeah, so I had, uh, 
planned on dropping some stuff off. And I knew in my mind, like, man, I'm about to not out. I just need to get back to the house. And so I woke up to the police pulling me out of my vehicle. Um, my, I, I was at a stoplight and my foot stayed on the brake somehow. And I don't know how many cycles the light went through, you know, before they got called, they actually came there. They pulled me out of my vehicle, but, uh, you know, they pulled me out and I had drugs. I had a bunch of cocaine. I had a gun, you know, I had all this stuff on me and, um, yeah, man, like, it's just the fact that I didn't get in a wreck then I didn't hurt myself or anybody else. It was just a miracle in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. So this is, this is, uh, ironic. So before, you know, before we started talking, I, uh, you know, recording, I had asked you about, I said, well, it seems weird that the, you know, some of the, the things I had read about you and, and heard about, I thought it seems odd what the judge ended up sentencing you. You, you, you were sentenced to, well, you know, you said that your, your lawyer said, oh no, it's not going to be anything. You have no prior arrest. It should be, it should be, uh, not a big deal in a way. And then you were given this 20 year sentence. And yeah. I thought something's, something's up. This doesn't sound right to me. Like I've got to ask him like what's happening, but now that you're explaining and framing everything that you did leading up to that, yeah. <laughs> I'm thinking, Oh, okay. Yes. It actually does make sense. I don't know how much that judge was aware of all of that, but it does sound like you were into, you, you know, you, you were involved with a lot of stuff for a while, for a good period of time. So, yeah. so walk us through that day of, um, what was it? February 24th, 2005. You, you're, you're, you know, uh, you, you can give us an abbreviated version of, but just of what was going through your mind, who was there in the court with you and, and how did this, how did this go down? Yeah. So, you know, I've, I've got my attorney and my family's there and, I've got a suspicion at this point, this might not go well, but you know, my attorney's like, man, you know, dude, just your first offense, like you might get some probation, maybe a little bit, but like, it's not going to be bad. Like you're going to be all right. And then, you know, when the judge just smacked it down like that, just 20 years, you know, just reality really kicked in as they started cuffing me up, you know, my, my family's starting to cry. And, uh, you know, I just had what, what Tim Grover refers to as one of those like fuck you moments where I was just like, all right, you know, like this is the reality of the situation. I'm going to make every day count. There's not going to be one day I can look back on and think, why didn't I use this time more effectively? And I'm going to change my life and I'm going to help other people change their lives. Yeah. And for those of you listening, if you don't know Tim Grover, that's Michael Jordan's, he was Michael Jordan's longtime coach and, and just like all about, you know, uh, raising your game, raising your level. Uh, just want to give that reference. So you, and you had a, your daughter was what under two years old at the time. Yeah. Daughter just turned two. Um, yeah. So your whole life, gets turned upside down. Um, you, I guess you're faced with the choice of like, you know, roll, roll over and die or, you know, the, the, I, I, I hate to do this, but I'm a huge fan of Shawshank and I'm, I'm sure you've heard it 
you know, for many people, but, but it's like, I think of, uh, Andy Dufresne, that famous quote, get busy living or get busy dying. Um, and there's so many quotes from that movie. It's an incredible movie, but that's what I think of when you say you made, it sounds like that this was the wake up call. Um, you get put into a, it's a, it's a medium to high, uh, level security. So it's like, it's like the full on, it's, it's one of the worst versions of prison. It wasn't like you were just put in a, a country club prison off the bat. You were in there with some hard, hard people. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, you know, one of the, one of the most important things that I think that I did was immediately took responsibility. Like this is my fault. You know, it was because of the way that I was living. It was because of the decisions that I made that I'm here right now. So I didn't blame anybody. I took responsibility and and went from there, you know, and then just started asking the questions like what led up to this? How can I not do that again? And what can I do with my life? That's going to make a difference now. Yeah. Now, but, but then I want to give this so people hear this because, you know, people say, okay, well that, you know, then he did this, he made this decision and boom, he was on his way to recovery. But you had the situation with methadone, which was, can you explain that to everybody, which is that you, you go into prison, you're 300 pounds, you're a big guy, but you're, you're also, I think probably at a layer of maybe a a layer of fat on top of that. And you explained to us that, you know, what they said when they asked you, you had to fill out the forms of, are you taking any medications? Give us that. Yeah. So when you start going to a methadone clinic, the highest dosage, at least to my knowledge, at least at the time that they would give you is up to a hundred milligrams. And then you come back and you do a blood trough test. And then they see the next day, how much of it's still active in your system. So normally the top end for most people is 100 milligrams, but because of the amount of opiates I was consuming on a regular basis, they ended up bumping me up to 180 milligrams, so almost double the dose of the maximum level somebody normally would get. And so that's what I was taking and had been taking every day for months. And whenever I I went in, you know, they asked me, are you on any medications, anything like that? And I said, yeah, you know, I'm on 180 milligrams of methadone a day. And they're like, oh, Okay. Well, like not anymore. So for anybody that has ever, you know, gone through withdrawal or had a problem with opiates, it's, uh, it's no joke. The withdrawal and and sickness you experience from that, especially uh, with that high of a dosage, it was definitely tough. And being in in that environment too, where you cannot show any signs of, of weakness or anything like that. It, it was a, it was an experience. Definitely. So how, so how do you get, how do you get your mind around it? Cause again, I'm relating this to someone who's listening and they're going, you know, most people, uh, or I'll speak for myself. I have setbacks every day, every day, something comes up, something, you know, knocks me off course or whatever. I have never had a setback to this degree, you were blessed or cursed with this incredible, I think the way you've handled it, it ends up being a blessing, but this incredible setback. And most people, I think, 
you know, there, there's, there, there would be a huge temptation to throw in the towel. So what I would love is to kind of get underneath this. And, and I love the story and, and I'm going to encourage people to go listen in, in other forms and listen to other interviews that Rob has done and go follow him, you know, because I, I want people to hear your story, but I, I'm really interested in like the, how did you get through it? Like day to day, you're in prison. I mean, what, what, what were the thoughts you told yourself? What were the actions? How did you keep yourself on point? Because it just seems like it would be so easy to slip into helplessness, despair, or could you kind of like, um, I don't know if you can, if you can remember back to what it was, what, what were their habits that you created? What were their thoughts? Were there mantras? What did you do to get through that period? So at first, man, it was like, it was like a nightmare, you know, like I would, I would have dreams that, that I was, that I was free, that I was out and then I'd wake up and I didn't know how to deal with it. You know, it was, uh, like, especially just like being in, you know, going from freedom to just being in a cell, you know, most times for, you know, days or at a time or 23 hours at a time, only being able to get out to take a shower every other day. And, uh, you know, there's no TV, there's no distraction, there's no phone, there, there's nothing, you know, it's just your thoughts, you know, your thoughts is all you have. So you're forced to confront all of your demons, you know? So, you know, I thought about, uh, uh, you know, I could have visions of like me killing myself, you know, like all kinds of crazy thoughts ran through my mind, but it, it was, you know, like, again, thinking like, how did this happen? Like what led up to this? And then, uh, you know, I started started reading. I started reading books. You know, that was one of the first things that could take me away from where I was at. That could take, that could free my mind momentarily. So, you know, my body is sick, you know, but I start exercising. Like I was just used to weights and I started a routine with just body weight stuff. So it was basically, you know, I kept myself, I read, studied, worked out. And then as my body got healthier, my reading retention skills got better. I read more and more books, started focusing more on like psychology, self-help type books and continued training. And that was just my routine. I kept it myself. I read, I studied, I worked out. Yeah. Yeah. And explain how that kind of um, raised your status in a certain way within the prison. Cause I know that, that you drew something came of that, you know, not that that was your intention. I think your intention was just to stay on the straight and narrow, but what happened as a result of that? Yeah, I would, you know, like you end up moving to different facilities based off of how long you've been in there and then your level of security, um, because of behavior and amount of time you have remaining in your sentence, things like that, you get moved to different locations, and so each new place I would move, I would click quickly set up my routine for what I would do. And I had my routine. I did my own thing. I kept it myself. And then people would see, you know, my consistency that I would be doing the same things. And they just sought me out like, Hey man, like, do you, do you mind if I work out with you essentially, or can you kind of show me what you're doing? And so each place I would be at, I would end up, you know, training a group of, of, of the guys there. And, um, so group training started, started in that environment for me. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think that's an amazing lesson right there. Cause we, we talk about it all the time on the show, um, cool. about kind of going after your goal, putting, you know, putting your blinders on and doing what you do. And when you focus on 
really going after something, people do take notice. You know, it's just like the consistency. People take, and it's it's it sounds like people gravitated toward you, and um, you know, so it sounds like things got better. My question is kind of like, what was your I would imagine, you know, if you're if I'm in prison for that long and I'm going, what what's your connection to the outside world, to your daughter? How how was that with your daughter, with your the mother of your daughter? Um, I don't think you guys were married, but what you know, how did that work out? Your parents were there frequent visits or were you largely left on your own in there? And how did that affect your behavior within prison? So me and my, my daughter's mom had split up. Uh, she was coming to see me. She was bringing my daughter to come to see me. It was something that I really looked forward to. And, um, you know, I made some mistakes, uh, when I was out before getting locked up, I had, I had cheated on her and, uh, you know, she never knew the truth about that and found that out when I was locked up. And, um, I just got a letter one day from her basically saying, you know, I, found out what happened and I'm never going to talk to you again. You might see your daughter, but it won't be because I bring it. And in that environment, you know, I just had to take that bit of information and just push it down and pretend it didn't exist because in there you can't like, there's no one you can talk to about anything like that. You just, you just have to deal with it, you know, and, and having like that, that was one of the biggest driving forces was, uh, you know, thinking about my daughter and thinking about this question, you know, like when somebody would ask my daughter, like, Hey, what do your parents do? She would say, you know, with her mom, like, Oh, you know, my mom, she's a chemical engineer and, uh, my dad, eh." you know, so like I wanted her to be able to answer that question with something she could be proud of. Yeah. So that always really drove me every day thinking about that. So I got to see her every now and then my family would bring her up. Um, but I just wrote her letters every week. And, uh, and would she respond or no? Did you just keep no, writing them anyway? Yeah. I just wrote them anyway. Did you ever like, have you repaired that relationship somewhat? since like now that you're, you know, current day is your relationship with your daughter. Um, is it, does it exist or, or are you out of her life now? No, it, it exists. Like it, it's cool. Like it took like the whole thing, it was completely my fault. You know, all of it was my fault. And so I had to do, I had to work very hard for many years to try to, to repair that relationship to, you know, just a cool level. And now we're, we're cool. You know, I live in Oklahoma city. She lives in Houston with her mom, but I'm able to like, sometimes her mom and her fiance will, 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 uh, you know, want to go out of town and she'll have me come there, fly there and stay in their house and, and take care of my daughter. So we're cool on that level. So it's just been uh, a blessing that, that we're, we're at where we are now. And uh, I'm able to talk to my daughter freely and openly about, about anything. And it's just, you know, it's cool, but it took a lot of work to, to get it to that point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you, there's something you said in, in another interview with our mutual friend, Craig Ballantyne, which I will put in the show notes so people can hear it because you guys get into some things that we won't cover here. So if, if people are still interested and want to hear more about, um, you know, different aspects, they can go listen to that. But you said something, you said, when you have everything taken away from you, 
you start to look at things like, I get to do this, not I have to do this. And you talk about when you were in there looking forward to just being out, even if you were just working paycheck to paycheck, you were like, please, I'll take that. That's a great opportunity. How how can you how do you tell people, you know, someone's listening right now and whatever they're going through, they're listening for whatever reasons they are. Um, what do you say to them when they go like, ah, it's a drag, I gotta do this, 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 and this? Like what what is your take on that? Because I feel like your take on that has more weight than the average person. What what can you tell us about like that where you were when you had that thought? What just, you know, like you said, you know, I would just would be, you know, laying there night after night, you know, staring at a spot on the wall or ceiling and just like, man, you know, I can't wait until I can just have the opportunity to live paycheck to paycheck. Let me get that. Because when you have that much contrast, you know, it made me appreciate how people could come from a third world country, come here and just become a doctor, lawyer, because they have that contrast. You know, they come and they see like, oh, my God, look at all this opportunity. These are all things that I didn't have access to before. You know, so I took so much for granted all the opportunities that I did have. My parents trying to get me to go to school, things like that. And then now it's like everything's taken away you know, to the point to where there's one time I'm in a facility where I was eight days in just a cell with nothing to where just some pages of a book were getting passed around. And I got just this like 30 pages of a part that was ripped out of a book. And when I got it, I was so happy, you know, just to be able to read that, you know, you know, just gave me a dramatically different perspective. And anytime I start to get stuck in my first world problems now, I've got that to reference And also to just like any problems, like the problems that come into your life, I look at it as those are gifts, you know, and the tougher situations you've had to go through, the more perspective you have and the greater ability you have to be able to connect with people on different levels and the better your ability to cope with situations that happen in your life to not freak out because like, if something happens, you know, with my, with my business or something like that, you know, I have somebody getting beat to death to compare that to. Yeah. And in the greater scheme, it's like, okay, like it's not that bad. Like yeah. it's gonna be- I mean, it's, as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm kind of filtering it through and going, wow, really what you're talking about is <clears throat> gratitude for the little things, because I, I find it myself. And I feel like, you know, even as a result of sitting down with, you know, people like yourself, who I, I get to really get into these conversations and really think about these themes and these principles. And yet I still find it in my day to day, you know, I'll be going along and something will happen that knocks me off and I'll start bitching about something. And and I'm not proud of it, but it's the, it's, it's sometimes what we do as humans if we're not careful and we're not on top of our our thoughts. Um, and it really is, I guess, it's coming back to like, what are you grateful for? What do you have right now? Because, yeah, it sounds like when everything's taken away as it was for you, you really, really realize like, oh my God, 10 pages of a book is a huge gift. Whereas... For the rest of us, we're kind of fat cats. Even even if we're in a hard time, comparatively, we're kind of like we got everything. There's water, there's food, there's you know, it's um, it's pretty cushy when you compare it to that. Right. Um, 
Now, now, given that, did you ever have times in there when you thought like, you know, just where you went through periods of time where it just like you just got knocked off course and and you were or were you just not even allowed that you didn't have that latitude because there were people around and you had to remain hard? Or did you feel like you had periods where you dipped back into victim mode? No, like any time the thought would start to enter my mind, I would just I would like it like there would be like, okay, so, you know, there's a lot of structure in prison. And uh, anytime something would happen that would disrupt that structure, I would get bent out of shape about it. And, you know, something would happen and they'd say, oh, because of this, everything's now going to be this way. And everybody would freak out about it, including me. But then it's, you know, just with any like crisis type situation that happens, you know, it's a big deal. Emotions are running high at first, but then it kind of dies down and things return to normal. Yeah. So it's like that. Um, and, and the things that I was continually reading helped to, to shift my mind and focus it to, to bigger picture and me thinking about just really, really focusing on beyond here, because like there would be things that would happen. Um, you know, maybe a guard would do something to try to evoke a response out of me where it would have been a momentary feeling of me winning to react in the way they were wanting me to. But I knew like, that's not long-term goal win, you know, that might for the moment make me feel better, but that that's going to extend the amount of time I'm going to have to stay here if I act on that. Yeah. And, and that's something I want to mention to everybody. So originally the sentence was 7,000 days, which was 20 years. I believe that's correct. Right. You ended up taking college courses full time. Um, and before you weren't really into learning and now you felt like I get to do this. You got all A's. You, yeah. you reduced your sentence from 20 years down to seven years, six months and 18 days. Yeah. Um, you, you get out and you're supposed to be, I want you to explain this cause this was, it was in a way funny to me, but like totally understandable. But I feel like I would be the same way. You get out and you rem- they say, you go to them. Just describe the day, actually, that how how it was that you were discharged. Just explain okay. that because I, I found that very kind of funny in a certain way. Give us that story. So I'm at a halfway house at the time. I'm working for this place called Big Truck Taco. And I took that job specifically because the thought of interacting with people terrified me. So I took that job specifically to desensitize myself to that process. And uh, I knew that it was coming close for me getting out. They do what's called a jacket review. uh, Whenever you're getting close to review your days, your credits, you know, to see where you're at, if you've gotten credit for everything, all all that good stuff. And then I'm, so I'm getting ready to go to work this day. I'm, I'm walking my bike to the front entrance and they call me in the office and they're like, Hey, uh, you're going home today. And I was just like, what do you mean that you're going home? I'm like, okay. So like, I need to like call somebody and have them pick me up. They're like, yep. Like, okay. So like, I need to pack my, my stuff up in my room. Like, yep. All right. So like, I need to like, I can bring it down here and then like <laughs> go outside and Yeah. I was like, okay, so I just like do that right now. Yeah. You know, it was just like a, a really surreal moment for me. Um, 
Yeah, it just, I, I couldn't believe it was happening. But, but explain to us how now you're still kind of, you remember this, that when you were sentenced, they said you're going to have two years of supervision at the end of the sentence. And now you ask them about that and they're like, no, you're good. So what did you do? Yeah, so I still have these papers in my wallet. <laughs> I still have these papers in my wallet and it's been over six years. Yeah. Um, but they showed me my discharge papers and I know when I got sentenced, it was 20 years sentence with 10 years um, on paper, the first either two or three supervised. And so I saw they, they broke out my paperwork, showed me in the office and up there in the spot where it says, you know, supervised, there was not a check mark there. And I said, hey, you know, who do, who do I need to report to? Like nobody. I was like, no, like I know what I heard in court that day. Like, no, well, it says here, like, that you don't report to anybody. I'm like, oh, man, I know. Like, so I went to uh, the courthouse, Oklahoma County Courthouse, and, you know, started asking people there, like, hey, I know what I heard. And they're like, well, this is what your paperwork says. And I actually ended up running into the DA that sentenced me. And I was like, hey, remember me? Um, and, and asked her about it. And like, hey, like, I know what was said. And she's like, well, that's what your paperwork says. So you're good, but I'm just going to let you know, you know, if you mess up, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to come after you. Yeah. So. I love that story because it's like, it, it feels like it's too good to be true. You know, you're in shell shock at that point and it feels like it's, it's too good to be true. And, um, I mean, do you, so you carry these papers around, do you still have that? Are you now over that fear of like, or do you wake up in the middle of the night sometimes thinking you, you could go back? I mean, I would imagine it's gotta be a little bit of PTSD. Yeah. I still, I still have dreams about it. You know, that like I'm back in there and I don't know why. And I'm just like, man, what the hell? Um, but yeah, I still, I still have those papers in my wallet. You know, I don't know why. Um, maybe I'll, maybe I'll take them out and throw them away one day. I don't know. You know, maybe it will be a part of a, a story one day. Yeah. Yeah. You you need to, this story needs to be, you know, in a book or in a movie because it's, it's, um, what you've done and we can get into it a little bit. I, I don't want to keep you too long. Um, but just, you know, what you've done with your business, you came out, you go, you get, uh, certified, you go to, uh, work at a gym and that is, it's a huge gym. It's a kind of a 24 hour place. And, and that is now, as I understand it, that is the, that is your gym. Now it's become a CrossFit affiliate and that's where, what twice bitten is. Yeah. So I started out as a one-on-one trainer, just kept it real with the owner of the building, you know, like, Hey, I'm a certified personal trainer, but I just got out of prison. I'm looking for somebody to give me an opportunity. So I started one-on-one training there, <clears throat> built up my clientele doing that. Um, eventually it was able to open up a little 1500 square foot space connected to that building. Um, open that up, partnered up with some people, didn't know what the hell I was doing. So ended up, uh, through that process, going through two different failed partnerships and not knowing anything about business in that sense. And, uh, what really changed the game for me was getting mentors and coaches and, uh, and it's still a process. I'm still learning all the time, but we went from 1500 square feet to 4,000 square feet to now 16,000 square feet. Um, so one of the biggest facilities, you know, in Oklahoma and, you know, I've got an awesome team 
and, uh, and a community of people that I get to, you know, see lives get changed every day. And it's freaking awesome. And now, you know, it's really been about uh, really trying to, to develop my team because they're the ones that that get to make the greatest impact now. So it's just it's been really cool. And, w- and where do you want to go from here? What's the vision of, you know, is it to uh, to just keep it contained within that that gym community or do you, do you want to go deeper within the community you have built or are you looking to expand out and maybe have other gyms elsewhere or take your message on the road? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I know that you, uh, you, you get your message out there. Is that something like, what's the vision moving forward? You know, do you have, a direction that you're going right now that you would say, Oh, this would be really what I want to do is I, I want to be speaking all around the country about the lessons that I've learned. Or are you like, no, I just want to take it to my community and improve, improve my community and, and keep it contained. So I work on myself every day. I wake up about three and I read for a good two solid hours every day, read, take notes on personal development. Um, business strategy, sales, influence, all things like leadership. I wanted to develop into the leader who's capable of developing leaders who can develop leaders. So that's- What what do you do, by the way, just logistically, when do you go to bed? At eight. Okay. So it's an extreme discipline. Yep. Okay. So you want to develop leaders that that develop leaders. Um, And in what form does that take? Is that that something that- is like a program within your gym or do you want to put that out into the world? Something that people can buy and people can spread around and be in on the other side of the world and benefit from it. Right now. I mean, it is taking place in, in my gym. Uh, one of the things that, one of the things that made me a good drug dealer was and, and able to survive in prison and have like side hustles and things like that was I would just, naturally ascend to the top of the environment, seeking out like the best of the best. And it served me in a negative way when I was in a negative place in my head. But now, you know, I get the opportunity to, to network, obsess, seek out and be around the best of the best when it comes to everything, to making somebody the strongest, healthiest version of themselves. We're talking about fitness wise, talking about psychologically, nutrition, like all those things together, I'm constantly seeking out and extracting the information from the best and the best in the world, you know, so that I can know it and embody it. And so that I can help my team know it and embody it and they can impact everybody else to know it and embody it. And those people become leaders that then affect their families and it just affects thousands and thousands of people that way. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. How you've taken something that, you know, it's, it's kind of a funny sentence. What made me a good drug dealer, but it's true. It's like you had, it's like you had all of the skills. They were just being pointed in a direction that was maybe harming people or leaving them worse off than when they met you. And now you've taken it, reversed it, leaving them better off than when they met you. And to your point, you know, you and I had joked back and forth. I think it may have been on text prior to this interview. And I said something about, 
you know, oh, uh, you got to, you, you know, for you guys, if you go check out Rob on Instagram, he's just jacked and and like has like a, a 32 pack, I think it is. Um, and I said something to you about that. And you said, and you sent me a picture of you. And I think it was your strength coach. And you said, look at the size of his arms compared to mine. Cause you're a big dude. And, and there was, this guy was next to you and his, his arms were, you know, significantly bigger than yours. And I just thought like the, the humility, the self-deprecation, the, the self-knowledge, the, the uh, ability to, uh, to go, I'm, you know, I know a lot, but I'm going to seek out even more from, from people that will push me. I'm going to play at a higher level than mine. You just from that text alone, it's like you, I could tell you're living that. And, um, and that's really cool. And I think, I believe that's why you are affecting the lives that you are right now. I've got, uh, I got a couple of three questions for you and then, um, I'm going to let you go complete this sentence. The word no actually means what actually means opportunity. It means opportunity to find another way. And follow up. What is, if you have one, what is your go-to mantra when everything falls apart? That there's always a way. There is always a way. Like the only time you fail is if you give up. That's it. You know, like problems are gifts, you know, and everything that we view as a problem or obstacle, it's an opportunity. It's a learning opportunity. It was something that was given to you to make you grow into the next level person that you were meant to be. There's only one skill set right now that you know or don't know that you're lacking in that's preventing you from becoming the next best version of yourself. So no is an opportunity. I love that. And you should be selling my t-shirts, you know, on the back of my 10,000 nose t-shirts, it says failure is opportunity. So I should be having you out there hawking them on the street corners. (laughs) Um, And the last question I have for you, if you could give your younger self advice, what age would you choose to intervene and what would the advice be? Mm. Probably... Probably around the the twelve or, or thirteen range, and just some way to to pique my interest to start in, in the realm of learning and personal development skills, because I think it's just so powerful the the peace of mind that you get when you really start to immerse yourself in understanding how and why your mind works, and uh, just how much better you can feel, and you know. Like I really take it on uh, now to, to help other people with that. But yeah, because I was definitely lost. And uh, if I had had that knowledge, then I think it would have really helped. But, you know, things happen the way that they're supposed to happen for a reason, I believe. Yeah. Rob Groupie, I can't thank you enough. I love your story. I love what you stand for. I'm going to put everything in the show notes, links to where people can find you, where people can follow you. Um, I really just thank you for sitting down with me and, and sharing your story and being so open and so honest. And um, it's truly inspiring and uh, a reminder of me 
you know, to me to, to next time I, I start to, to complain about anything, just to think of you and what you went through and, uh, and realize that, you know, it's not so bad comparatively. Thank you so much, man. You bet, man. Every day's a gift. This is just the beginning. Just wow. Who is with me on the power of this story? It's, it's hard as usual to choose only three takeaways, but here's what I'm going with. Number one, taking full responsibility for your actions. No blame. That's what Rob said he did immediately following the 20-year sentence from the judge. Easy? No. But that's what freed him to grow. If he can do it under these circumstances, we can do it with whatever we're facing. Don't be a victim. Number two, Rob said that thinking about his daughter and what she would have to tell people when they asked about her dad was the way he kept himself from giving up and giving in to the temptations of letting himself just rot away in prison. And we've talked about accountability on this show. This is it in spades. And his daughter wasn't even a participant, really. It didn't matter. He used her to hold himself to a higher standard. Is there anyone in your life you can use to keep you from giving anything but your best? Maybe even the future version of yourself, imagining you're going to meet that man or that woman on your deathbed and have to look them in the eye and say, yeah, I did everything I could. Number three, gratitude. Seems to be the key for every guest, doesn't it? But it's, it's really brought home powerfully when you're talking about someone who is forced to find gratitude for a few pages from a book that he's sharing with cellmates. I mean, how spoiled are we when we complain out here in the free world? I'm not saying we can't strive for more, but if we look around right now, pause this and look around, you're listening to a podcast. It means you have access to content. You have a phone or a computer or internet connection. You're alive. You have time to listen. There is so much to be grateful for, and it's so easy to forget it. I hope this conversation helps you remember that you have so much to be grateful for. All right, that is it. Speaking of gratitude, I am so grateful for Rob to share this with us. I hope it helped you. If it did, I'd love it if you tell people about it. I want this show and these stories to really leave the world a better place, to help people grasp concepts that get them out of a bind, into less pain, more fulfillment, a sense of purpose. So, Please just tell your friends if you're finding it helpful and subscribe to 10,000 Knows wherever you're listening so you don't miss any episodes. All these guests are great for different reasons. And if you got something from Rob's story, I have many others with similar themes, but the top ones that come to mind, you can scroll through the 10,000 Knows feed or just click on these links in our show notes that we work very hard on. My, my team here is does these show notes and these links for all these guests. Uh, so you could just click on these. They'll put them in there for you. Firefighter Ironman, Matt Long. Mountain climber, author, Allison Levine, Kimmy Culp, who made a documentary film called Gleason about a pro football player who was in another form of prison through disease, or my conversation with Rob Whitaker, who sadly has passed away since our conversation after an intense battle with cancer. They all have similar themes to this conversation with Rob you heard today. Now, 
I know I say every guest is incredible, but next week we are very, very grateful to have the amazing Susie Batiste, CEO, founder of the $500 million company, Poopery. Her story is crazy, really, and she is awesome. You will love her. Can't wait for you to hear that. Follow me on social media for any updates, for promo videos, all kinds of stuff. Those handles are at Maddie Dell on Instagram, at Matthew Del Negro on Twitter and Facebook. You can email us at info at 10,000nos.com if you want to be added to our mailing list. And that is it. We are done here. Enjoy your week. Thanks again. And we'll see you next Friday. 